0: Someone needs to help out all of these new sites that are covering crypto stories because there's like maybe a dozen stock photos of coins with the Bitcoin logo on it and they all just rotate through them. Which is the website that
1: has these odd cartoon photos where the coins all have bodies?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Is that Cointelegraph? Is that? Yeah. They all, I mean, I guess to their credit, they're trying to create original ones, but you know, they spend a lot of effort on that stuff. I don't really like it. I don't think it adds anything to their
1: stories because you have this pretty large image of of an anthropomorphic ETH plum bob and then a two paragraph article about something.
0: And the other thing is, is none of these things are actually physical coins. It's kind of an, actually a rough analogy. And yet it's like what all of the stock photography features. I'm looking at this story right here and it's a pile of coins and they're Ethereum coins and Bitcoin coins as if people walk around with a bag full of physical coins now. <laughs> This is the Bitcoin Dad
1: Pod, recorded on Friday, August 12th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here in person for the first time in a while
0: with... Me, Chris. I just want to give you a little leg just to... So that way you felt like it was back to normal. Hold on, I'm freezing for a moment. (laughs) Uh, uh, Props to you. I imagine probably a lot more editing than you were expecting before you left for the trip. Just, you know, fixing up internet drops and things like that. Sharing a hotel room also is a difficult recording environment, all those things. Recording under a blanket,
1: so I'm sweating the whole time because i can't have the air conditioning on because that shows up in the background and then still periodically this Brr, call to prayer in the <laughs> background
0: Did you cut all those out? Some of them made it in. At least one of ours made it in, right? But there was other times where we would stop during the show for like five minutes or more. It's quite long. It's nice to be back in person again. It's good to have you back. Glad everybody's doing well. And there's a lot to talk about this week.
1: There certainly is. This week, we're going to talk about Iran using cryptocurrency for actual imports and exports. We said this would happen. I think this is about on schedule with our prediction, maybe a little early. The UN is warning about the cryptoization risks for developing countries their concerns are as simplistic and shallow as you might expect. On the privacy front, we have a lot of news because OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Control under the Treasury, has sanctioned Tornado Cash, which is a protocol, not a person. That has some terrifying and fascinating implications. In economics, BlackRock is capitulating and offering their own private Bitcoin trust, sort of like the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And in tokenomics, we have a fun article by Nick Baccia, the author of Layered Money, entitled Insiders Always Dump. I wish I had read this five years ago. Indeed. That'll be interesting. Yeah. And then in Bitcoin Education, we're going to get into Bitcoin Optech 212 and a really interesting conversation about raising the dust limit default on Bitcoin nodes. Then we We'll have feedback.
0: And boosts. I could definitely uh, use a little bit more on the dust limit. There is some dust in this studio. When the sun comes out, I can see it. My dust limit is during the day. And
1: for those who might not know, dust refers to Bitcoin transactions that are very, very low value. They might be so low in value that you can't economically spend that UTXO. We're talking about UTXOs that are 50 satoshis or 10 satoshis because to spend that UTXO, the transaction fee is larger than the UTXO. However, perhaps these dust UTXOs can be used in a transaction with multiple UTXOs to sort of spend some of the dust and then consolidate things. Of course, that reduces privacy too, so there's a lot of thought involved in these transactions.
0: Yeah, that'll be interesting to get into. After all, we are just dust in the wind. Iran's got some crypto dust these days. I think there's this
1: idea that Iran is a dusty desert like Iraq, and I think nothing could be further from the truth. It actually has almost every What's the term? Ecosystem?
0: Climate or whatever. Climate,
1: Mm -hmm. yeah. They're skiing Hmm. in Iran.
0: There was a period of time where you'd see like what people think Iran looks like, what Iran actually looks like. I've seen some of those pictures. But of course, I wasn't referring to sand dust. I was referring to Bitcoin dust, although we don't actually know what currency was used. But yet there has been some announcements, so we know something has actually taken place.
1: And this refers to a Reuters report that Iran has made its first official import order using cryptocurrency this week. This report was accompanied by the stock photo we talked about in the intro of a pile of coins with various cryptocurrency logos on it. Actually, Shiba, or is it Shiba or Dogecoin? One of the dog coins. And and Ripple, Ripple too. They're right on the top.
0: me a break. It's so silly. And it puts all of these coins. It goes to that whole thing about putting all of these as equivalents. They're all alternatives when Stellar and Doge have and Ripple have nothing in common with Bitcoin. We'll actually get into that later.
1: The article goes on to say that basically, someone in Iran made an order worth $10 million and it was settled in digital assets, and it likely was done to bypass U.S. sanctions. A quote from the Ministry of Industry, Mine and Trade by the end of September, the use of cryptocurrencies and smart contracts will be widely used in foreign trade with target countries. Interesting. So let's dig into this. Why does Iran need to use Use cryptocurrencies as opposed to dollars like any other country? And the answer is because Iran has been under sanction by the U.S. for a very long time. I have trouble understanding why these sanctions exist. The official U.S. policy seems to be that Iran is essentially an evil country. Like, I don't know how to express this any other way. I found out recently that um, not only do Iranian citizens need a visa to visit the United States, but if a citizen of another country, say an EU country, who should be able to travel visa-free to the United States has Iranian background, as in the son or daughter of an Iranian, or maybe even the grandchild of an Iranian, they actually need to apply for a visa to visit the United States. And so the implication of that policy is that being Iranian is some sort of taint inside of you. And the U.S. has to be very careful of anyone who carries the touch of Iran. Must screen them all. Can't let them in. I mean, that's incredibly sinister. I feel like that's one of those facts when you learn it, you're like, wait, hold on. Are we the bad guys? Is that
0: racist? (laughs) It is. It (laughs) is definitely. That is a racist policy right there. Yeah. And of course, like we said earlier, when we kind of predicted this would happen, when you take away all of the other options, eventually they're going to come to Bitcoin and then they'll find that it meets all their needs. It handles the settlement aspect. It handles the trust aspects. It handles the value exchange aspect. And what do you think is going to happen?
1: The effect of U.S. sanctions has been to force the Iranian economy to be quite insular because since the U.S. dollar is used to clear so many foreign transactions around the world, by sanctioning Iranian entities, it's really cut Iran off. And this has actually had terrible effects on the life expectancy and safety of Iranians in the form of Iran historically has had a very high rate of aircraft accidents because these sanctions have deprived domestic Iranian airlines of access to spare parts and maintenance tools to maintain their planes. It also means that Iranians have less access to pharmaceuticals. And so the Iranian medical system is at a much lower capacity than it could be. So sanctions are, in my opinion, a human rights violation because, sure, they can hurt the quote-unquote evil regime of a country. Unfortunately, they hurt this regime by hurting every single person who lives there.
0: Yeah, and I think the very fact that these sanctions have had to last as long as they have shows you that they don't necessarily work. And so what you end up doing is creating a culture where the leadership class insulates themselves from the damage and then the people take the burden of the sanctions. I guess if that's the policy, that's the policy. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But for the purposes of our show, the part that seems just like a foregone conclusion, I suppose another analogy to use would be we've made this bed and now we're really having to lay in it. When you weaponize the dollar, you create more and more people, a network of individuals who can't use that dollar. And then they will start working with each other and they'll start trading with each other. And then before you know it, you fast forward since Obama to today and you've got Iran, China and Russia all trading together. And they're talking about using digital currencies. They're talking about using their own currencies. And that will just grow. It'll just get bigger. It's like, don't you see it? Don't you see what happens when you weaponize the dollar? It actually breaks
1: the network effects of the dollar. Exactly. And one of the problems with cutting Iran out of the global economy is that Europe wants to trade with Iran. The French have a nuclear program that they want to share with Iran, not weapons, but nuclear power, because France, is a serious nuclear power powerhouse and they want to sell reactors around the world. And so by weaponizing the dollar and cutting Iran out, that actually it hurts Europe, it hurts the adoption of the dollar. I mean, this is part of the reason why the US dollar is fading as a reserve currency because of these sanctions against Iran and these sanctions against Russia.
0: Right, well when the sanctions against Russia went into effect, it was just continuing the damage to that network effect. It was just the, the Iranian stuff had been in place for a while. And when we expanded the Russian sanctions, we ex- we expanded the damage considerably. And it's continuing.
1: And an interesting aspect of sanctions is we will end up, we will all end up violating sanctions at some point, I believe, because, for instance, we have boosts for this show. And so boosts are a push payment system. We basically have told the world where our show lightning note is and anyone can send money to it. And so eventually, if we do our job right, we'll have Iran. And listeners, and they will send questions to our node. And we've probably violated sanctions at that point, which is a 30-year prison sentence. Now, are they going to go after the Bitcoin dad pod? Probably not, because we're not a big deal. At the same time, this is kind of an example of how insane these financial restrictions are, because we're moving towards a world where, through no fault of your own, eventually you'll end up violating a law with a 30-year prison sentence.
0: People are building things to be worldwide now, and the systems that are governing all of these things are still very much based on borders and the financial systems behind all of these states are very much built around borders and their economies and the economies they control but if you look going forward just at the natural trend of humanity and you just look at where we're at today in 2022 and how we have now internet money we have people who do their entire livelihood online where is this going to go in 20 years is it going to go more towards everything is defined by by borders on a map or is it going to go more towards everything is worldwide everything is online i think the answer that that is absolutely obvious. So the friction that this is going to cause as humanity and our culture continues to evolve is just going to get more and more so because the limitations of basing rules and laws on artificial borders that were drawn on a map hundreds of years ago are just going to be incompatible with the natural direction of technology.
1: And that leads nicely into this report from UNCTAD, the United Nations Council on Trade and Development. Thank you, Kamal, for bringing this to my attention. And in this report, it shows the share of the population that owns digital currency in the top 20 economies, and the top three are Ukraine, Russia, and Venezuela—basically economies that are falling apart in a state of crisis. And one, the the top economy by crypto penetration is literally the site of a war right now. Yeah, yeah. What this tells us is in times of strife, people use cryptocurrency to financially protect themselves. And the U.N. report, there are three parts. They're they're sort of directives or policy briefs. And the three reports, I'll just read the titles. All that glitters is not gold, public payment systems in the digital era, and the cost of doing too little too late. And essentially, the gist of this is that cryptocurrencies are becoming more and more popular. They're getting more adoption. They seem to be adopted by people with middle income. So not the super poor, not the super rich. And that makes sense to us because if you're too poor, you don't have the time preference for cryptocurrency volatility, though you could use stable coins. And if you're super rich, you don't really need this anymore because the world was built for you. And so you have complex shell companies and all sorts of ways to protect your wealth. Whereas everyone in the middle, which is the most, the the majority of humanity, they need Need something else and cryptocurrencies fill this role. And the UN points out that know, gosh, this is so bad because it could undermine yeah. domestic currencies and currency sovereignty. And oh gosh, if you're trying to do capital controls, basically right. prevent people from using their money how they would like and to lock them into a domestic economy, generally with high inflation.
0: Um, I think you mean a key instrument for developing countries to preserve their policy space and macroeconomic stability. Well, capital capital. Capital controls were actually always a
1: part of the Bretton Woods system post-World War II. So for our listeners who might not remember, Bretton Woods is the name of a town in New Hampshire where after World War or during World War II, there was a meeting of the Allied powers who defined what the post-World War II international monetary system would look like. And it was a system of fixed exchange rates where all exchange rates around the world were fixed to the dollar and the dollar was fixed to gold. And this was a relatively stable system, but it required capital controls because if you allowed the free flow of money between countries, you could get into situations where one country had no more gold left, like all the gold flowed out of that country. And then that country would need to redefine its currency relative to the others. And this would be unstable. After the end of the Bretton Woods system in 1971, when Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard, basically defaulting on the U.S.'s obligation to pay gold to foreign creditors. So this was a default. This was a currency crisis, but it wasn't called that at the time. The world over time globalized. And this meant reducing capital controls, allowing more free flow of capital between countries. And this is a very interesting period. There's actually a book on this subject I'd like to recommend called Hard Times in the 21st Century by an academic. I believe her name is Helen Thompson, really brilliant woman. And during this period of free flowing capital, well, if you think about this economically, it's kind of interesting. In economics, we generally think that everything in the world is built out of capital and labor. Labor is people moving their hands around or thinking very hard. Capital is machines. It's it's things that you can buy with money that basically enhance what people do somehow. So you could think of a car might be capital, depending on how you're using it, or a machine that produces widgets, whatever. Well, if capital can move between countries, but labor can't, that's kind of interesting, right? What does that do? Well, this is actually the story of wealth inequality in many ways in the last 40 years. Well, in the developed world, we're pretty used to having very limited capital controls. If you want to send your money, to France or Germany or England, it's generally pretty easy. But in the developing world, there are still intense capital controls. And as the UN points out, cryptocurrencies are 100% resistant to capital controls. And so they break this development model that requires some capital controls. Now, what's interesting is that this report really has a big blind spot, which is that people are not being coerced into using cryptocurrencies. They're just doing it because they think it benefits them. And we think it does.
0: Well, and their other options are probably not very good. Right.
1: And so I think that the question that the UN should be asking itself is, you know, this development model that requires capital controls, that basically requires holding hostage all the wealth of the people who live in developing countries so that the government of those countries can then take this wealth and invest it. How successful has this model been? And I would say disastrous, because if you look at the developing countries versus developed countries in the world since 1955, none have become developed using this model. The only countries that have quote-unquote developed in that time period, developed on their own using their own domestic plans. I'm thinking of Singapore, Hong Kong. Any additions, please send a note into the show and we'll read them out loud. So it's a pretty typical institutional report. It doesn't self-reflect on what people choosing to use cryptocurrencies, stablecoins, Bitcoin means about the current system. It's clearly an indictment of the inefficiency and the unfairness and the general crappiness of the existing financial world if people are willing to take a risk on cryptocurrency.
0: You know, we see a report like this nearly every week. I think last week or really recently, we were looking at a report from the ECB. Like you look at all of these reports, for the majority of them. They're failing to talk about the market drivers that are driving consumers to buy cryptocurrency. And I find that odd because most of the time, reports like this do try to analyze consumer behavior and come up with some kind of answer as to why the market is behaving. What is driving these market forces? What's causing this? Why are consumers responding? What is it they are responding to? But yet, can you think of any of these reports where they've done that analysis, where they've really explained these are the market? drivers that are are taking the middle class and driving them to go into some crazy risk asset? Well, I think the Federal Reserve report came closest. That's what I was thinking. Because it was talking
1: about how the Lightning Network turns Bitcoin into digital cash. And isn't that cool? But I think the fundamental problem is you cannot pay someone to understand something that makes
0: You cannot pay someone to understand something their paycheck depends on not understanding.
1: Something like that. Essentially, they have all the data in front of them to make the conclusion that, gosh, there's a lot of organic grassroots demand for non-state money. But if they say that out loud, well, they're putting at risk their cushy UN job or their cushy central bank job, because I would say that Bitcoin represents people opting out. When people speculate in altcoins, I don't think they're opting out. Their cosplaying is opting out. In the end, they're going to get wrecked because... Because altcoins are actually peak fiat,
0: and we, we will demonstrate that later. Also, people that are speculating in altcoins, you got to imagine most of them are hoping to take winnings out in cash.
1: They want dollar gains. Altcoins are all about dollar gains, and we have data that supports that view.
0: So I think you're absolutely right. You know, you look at it and you think, why would they want it? Why, they're basically undermining their own jobs if they put that in the report. If they came out and said there's legitimate market drivers for this, they're kind of saying there's legitimate market that bypasses them. That's got to be it. Uh, they're very incentivized not to see it. But it makes you think that they're never going to be able to actually tackle the problem head on?
1: Well, I think that's the theme of the next 10 years, which is the traditional system, whatever we have today, it needs to fundamentally change to prevent economic and social and physical in terms of energy shortages and whatever, catastrophe. But To make that change is very hard. You have to question what you believe. You have to question who you are. You have to, like we said before, maybe hold up the mirror and say, hold on a second. There are skulls on our uniforms. Are we the bad guys? (laughs) You know, this is very difficult for people to do. And everyone who's frankly has any sort of power today is incentivized to not do this. Because again, if people are opting out of the system where you're top dog, well, they got out before you. So now if you follow them into that system, you're going to be below them, maybe, potentially, who knows? So there's no incentive to change before catastrophe. And Nassim Taleb had a nice point in his book, anti where he said, think about restaurants in your neighborhood. Do you ever encounter a new restaurant? You go there, the food is terrible, and you tell them, hey, you know, this food is terrible. And the waiter says, oh, I'm so sorry. Let me get the chef out. And the chef comes out and he takes detailed notes. And then you come back next week and the food is great. Has that ever happened? No. No. (laughs) The way that it works is bad restaurants make bad food and then they die and a good restaurant makes good food. And then over time, you know, the management changes and they make bad food and they die and a new restaurant comes. But the thing is, we're in a system where the restaurant management doesn't want to go out of business and they've locked the doors. We need to get out. Yeah, it's
0: McDonald's or nothing, and
1: you're going to like it.
0: (laughs) And we're over saying, hey, you know what? You could actually make this at home.
1: Right. Yeah, Bitcoin is this little escape hatch we've built into the side of the building and they're trying to stop us from using it.
0: Yeah, they don't want to even talk about it. It's this weird situation where they clearly need to respond to it and there's market pressure for them to have an answer, but they don't want to talk about it and validate it at the same time. And of course, you see that with the development of CBDCs as well. They clearly see a market need, but they don't want to validate at the same time. Very funny.
1: That actually leads into the hedge funds reporting on crypto exposure.
0: Yeah, I'm curious to know what your take is on this, because first of all, it's the SEC and the CTFC coming together, which these are the two US bodies that are likely going to end up with regulatory oversight of the various aspects. And they're just preemptively coming together on this one. I think that's fascinating. So like, clearly they both believe this is the way to go. And number two, to me, the way I read it is it's basically forcing hedge managers to put on the books when they're dorking around with crypto funds. But I'm curious what your take is on it.
1: Right. So the SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, they regulate financial products, stocks bonds in the United States. CFTC. Securities, yeah. Commodity Futures Trade Commission, I think. They regulate commodities such as pork bellies and wheat. And Bitcoin is legally, I think, a commodity at this point, um, whereas everything, every other crypto asset is a security, though Ethereum is trying to become a commodity. And so these are the two regulators of quote unquote crypto assets in the United States. And they're coming together to agree that hedge funds, big hedge funds, I think with over 500 million dollars of exposure which is a lot, need to do additional reporting on their crypto exposure. So why do we care? As far as I know, only two of our listeners have a net worth over $500 million. Oh. I'm just making that up. Oh.
0: I like that idea, though. (laughs) Arthur. (laughs) Yeah. Boost in. Let us know. Boost
1: in. Let (laughs) us know your net worth as of the moment. I think what's interesting is, one, this is another attack on financial privacy, even though it's at a more institutional level. Do we really care about the financial privacy of big hedge funds? I don't know. But what's kind of interesting is that this sort of monitoring is the kind of monitoring that suggests trying to track the systemic importance of cryptocurrency. We can demonstrate that with a quote from SEC Chairman Gary Gensler, who says, Gathering such information would help the Commission and Financial Stability Regulators Better to observe how large hedge funds interconnect with the broader financial services industry. This is actually quite telling. And the paranoid part of me says, this is how you set up the blame game for blaming cryptocurrency for the next financial system crash.
0: Oh, I hadn't gone there yet. That's Sorry. scary. That's you know interesting. Jerome Powell was testifying to Congress semi-recently. You might remember this, and he was asked point blank, "Does he think a crypto collapse could have a contagion effect with the wider U.S. economy?" And he said point blank, "He does not believe there's a chance of that." Uh-oh. That's Jerome Powell. Maybe Jerome Powell doesn't know what he's talking about. Jerome Powell has a zero
1: for a hundred. I know. That's average, true. So <laughs> that's a good point. It's basically a, a given now.
0: I feel like also Janet Yellen said it too, so I'm really screwed. <laughs> and just to be
1: frank, the size of the Bitcoin crypto industry is let's say on a good day a trillion dollars right now. And the stock market is 35 trillion, the bond market is over 200 trillion, the real estate market is 350 trillion. So, saying that this tiny 1 trillion dollar asset class could somehow disrupt the rest of the financial economy is basically saying we built a house out of cards and this fly landing on it is the one that knocked it over. That's nonsense.
0: I read this just as it's just an opportunity to collect more data. These hedge funds probably should be reporting their crypto exposure, though. That does seem like something that should already be happening. And what's always funny about this is, of course, they just expand existing systems or existing forms that they need to fill out. So it'll just it'll trickle down to other folks as well. Uh, But I don't know, gives you a broader set of information to monitor about these hedge funds. I like to know what they're doing. I don't necessarily have an issue with this where I do kind of think you're right is it it is sort of like claiming, yeah, the fly that lands on the card house is what knocked it over. I mean, give me a break. That, that would be ridiculous. So
1: should we get into the big story?
0: Yeah, let me just finish up mixing some of my Ethereum over here real quick. <laughs> Got to get this finished up. <sighs> wow. What a week, huh?
1: I feel like we need to set the stage for any of our listeners who might have been in a small coma
0: and uh, missed the news. Or imagine they're just a a Bitcoin holder and they just are completely oblivious to all the shenanigans going on in Ethereum. How blissful would that be? Please boost in and tell me how to achieve that. Yeah. Although our job's kind of to report to them what's going on so, you know, we can remind them that Ethereum is just a mess. Sort of the role we've taken on. (laughs) I don't like having to waste brain space on Ethereum. But if it protects
1: one or two people from getting confused and thinking maybe Ethereum is the future and getting wrecked on that disaster. Faster than maybe it was worth it.
0: And I, I really feel like the news this week it doesn't feel like it's impossible for this type of story to hit bitcoin maybe you know a a wallet developer that we really like something like that like this this could be setting a historical precedent that we see the rest of the crypto community have to deal with
1: tornado.cash is a website with an ethereum address on it and this address is the address of a, a smart contract called tornado cash and it's it's frankly quite clever. The news is that this smart contract has been added to the sanctions list of a Treasury subdepartment called the Office of Foreign Asset Control, OFAC. Now, OFAC is responsible for maintaining sanction lists like Iran, like Russia. And adding the Tornado Cash address to this list means that for U.S. entities and probably financial system participants around the world, if you interact with this address, you are violating U.S. sanctions and there is a 30-year jail time penalty associated with doing that. Now, what's interesting about this? So, frankly, this is pretty crazy because this address is a smart contract. It's not an entity that can be reasoned with. It is literally a piece of code running on Ethereum. And let's talk about what it does. Frankly, it's, it's quite brilliant. And th- there's a problem with it, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave the problem to the end. What it does is it's basically a Xiaomi and Mint or something on, on Ethereum or feder- or non-federated. It's basically eCash on Ethereum. So you send funds into the Tornado Cash address and you basically get eCash redemption tokens. And these tokens can then be used to withdraw funds from the address. And because Ethereum is an account-based system, there aren't UTXOs. So there's no interlinking between UTXOs. There's just an account balance that goes up and down. So basically, when you send funds into an Ethereum address, they mix immediately. And then you take them out eventually, and you have no connection between funds that went in or went out. So basically, you send some funds in, you wait a bit, you take them out.
0: That makes more sense. That's why there are so many existing funds still in there is because people were waiting to withdraw it. What's the problem with this system? Well, the problem is
1: the fees are crazy high. It costs like 400 bucks to just do this once. So Tornado Cash is not the plebs mixing tool. This is the whale mixing tool. And that's the problem. 35% of the funds have been estimated in Tornado Cash to be basically the result of DeFi hacks. And the biggest DeFi hackers out there, Newsflash, is North Korea. North Korea is basically funding itself by hacking DeFi ecosystems and we, we talked about this a little bit the solana wallet hack slash mistake you know essentially defi is a my is a giant ponzi scheme and so everyone building on defi no matter how pure they think their intentions are they're responding to the ponzonomic move fast get in fast get out fast incentives of that ecosystem and as a result their security is garbage there's a lot of funds sloshing around in there because speculation is a you know it's a big business and so So this has been a ripe target for North Korea, and North Korea has been happily using the Tornado Cash smart contract to launder their hacked proceeds from the Axie Infinity hack, from the Nomad Bridge hack. So this painted a big target on Tornado Cash's back, and they tried to, quote-unquote, come into compliance because I think pretty recently they added some chain analysis white and blacklisting to the contract. I don't know how they did that. And this actually might be the problem which is following the developers which is when they were sanctioned. Not only was their website taken down because their tornado.cash website was hosted on AWS, but their GitHub repos were shut down too and the developer's account was suspended and a developer has been arrested in Amsterdam. And this is fascinating. So, there's so much to get in here. Where where do we go first? Targeting developers, the problem of the centralized Ethereum Ecosystem because their Infura APIs have been cut off for Tornado Cache or?
0: Okay, I'd like to hear more about that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's noteworthy that this developer was an open source developer. He wasn't running a hosted like VPS where he had this application running. He was creating an open source project that was posted on GitHub. And then that project, along with the uh, the DAO and the smart contracts that sit underneath it, uh, were actually the mechanism to do the uh, mixing or the joining, whatever it's called. But I'd like to understand a little bit more about technically how this works. So I know there's more of a centralization aspect to it. And it does sound like from a technical standpoint, is it closer to a coin? join than it is a mix or like in terms of it, like what is it closer to in Bitcoin terms? In Bitcoin,
1: we define a mixer as a custodial service that takes possession of your Bitcoin and then sends you someone else's Bitcoin.
0: Is the smart contract considered
1: a custodian though? I don't see how that could make sense because as long as if the smart contract has an admin key that an admin can go in and enter and alter the smart contract, maybe take all the funds, then yes, the person who has that admin key is technically a custodian then. If you deploy a smart contract and you have an admin key that allows you to take all the funds and people put put funds into that smart contract, then you're probably breaking U.S. financial regulation. You should be a regulated financial entity. And all of you Ethereum smart contract developers, this is notice for you. But I think the argument for Tornado Cash is that it is an independent smart contract without admin keys. And therefore, it's basically a robot, just code running on Ethereum, just free speech in action. And people are interacting with that, frankly, It's not surprising or problematic that OFAC could sanction this address because they can say, look, we don't really care what's happening on the back end, but practically what's going on is North Korea is using this for financial gain and we hate North Korea. Okay, fine. You can have opinions about that. The problem is that this actually blows up DeFi. Okay, how does that work? Well, it turns out that funds from Tornado Cash are basically in every DeFi smart contract. Vitalik has used Tornado Cash in the past. Right now, there's a Tornado Cash whale that is sending Ethereum from the Tornado Cash contract into the public Ethereum addresses of notable people in the Ethereum space. I think Jimmy Fallon, Brian Armstrong of Coinbase their .eth domain names are all visible. So people can just send the money because it's a push system. You can just send money to anywhere. There's no way to stop people from sending you money. No problem, right? Because if I publish my Bitcoin address or my pay name or something and Vladimir Putin sends me some Bitcoin, I don't know why I didn't ask for it. He's just pranking me. No problem because in my wallet, I can just say, okay, wallet, that UTXO that I received from Vladimir Putin's address, let's just freeze that. I'm not going to spend, that i don't want it to touch anything and when ofac comes knocking i'll be like hey guys don't throw me in jail for 30 years i'll just give this to you like i didn't ask for it Oh, wait. Ethereum's an account-based system. Oh, no. There's no UTXOs. Well, what does that mean? It means that if someone sends tainted, quote-unquote, Tornado Cash Ethereum to your address, it immediately mixes with all the Ethereum in that address. Amazing. It's a beautiful griefing attack. It means that right now, if Jimmy Fallon or Brian Armstrong or any of these ETH celebrities use those Ethereum addresses, they are using OFAC sanctioned funds.
0: It must have been a Maxi that did this. This is such a great prank. I love that Jimmy Fallon and Brian Armstrong have sanctioned ETH in, the, in their in account now. <laughs> Right. And, th- and there's so many problems with this, right? Because, okay,
1: you sanction the address, but hey, this is permissionless code. Anyone can still access it, right? Well, no, actually, because right now, most people, they interact with ETH via two services, Infura and Alchemy. And these are two centralized companies that run a whole bunch of ETH nodes, and they offer an API that is easy for applications and wallets to talk to so that you can interact with the ETH blockchain. And the reason they do this is Ethereum is a dumpster fire from a development standpoint. It is incredibly difficult to run an Ethereum node. It's expensive to run an Ethereum node. And you need server-grade hardware and a high-speed internet connection to do that.
0: There is something ironic about this, where if you have a node, you're in a slightly better position, but nobody in Ethereum runs their own node. The service providers have cooked up this Ethereum blockchain as a service that they then throw an API in front of?
1: Right, and Ethereum said, hey, no big deal because we're Ethereum. Everyone loves us. We're sunshines and rainbows and ponies all the way down. Don't forget the unicorns. Unicorns, baby. And as Bitcoiners, we are laughing and crying at the same time. We're laughing because Ethereum was built for fair weather. That was their design trade-off. They were always going to make it easier to use, more fragile, more reliant on trusted third parties so that they could get some adoption and push all of the many narratives around Ethereum. Like it or not, Bitcoiners are basically the cypherpunk version of survivalists, our blockchain is a fortress. It cannot be turned off by any entity in the world. U.S. government, come at the Bitcoin blockchain, bro. We'll discover who's tougher. And the answer is Bitcoin because there are tens of thousands of Bitcoin nodes all over the
0: world. It's so extreme. It's almost a joke scenario. But if it was that extreme, I would not put it past hundreds of clever Bitcoiners to just come up with a mesh wireless network system and then just start sinking the blockchain over that. Like There's technologies we could string together and a lot of these Bitcoiners are clever enough to do it. It's a parody to even come to that situation. It's so much easier when you have something low-hanging fruit like one service or two service providers where you can just have them shut down the API. And these companies are more than happy to do it. Like USDC blacklisted. A bunch of USDC has been blacklisted by Circle, the stuff that touched this tornado cache, and they weren't told to do it. They said that they did it just because they wanted to be careful, because they know this is a really tricky situation. And so they they just decided we should be proactive and we're going to blacklist that USDC before anybody tells us. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, 100 percent. And
0: now it's just that USDC doesn't work anymore. This
1: breaks DeFi. So one issue is that USDC is in a lot of smart contracts. Well, if the collateral in that smart contract and that DeFi liquidity pool or whatever is suddenly non-redeemable, all of the assumptions of that system fail because the assumption is that the collateral is worth something. Well, it turns out it's not. That's a real kick in the teeth.
0: It feels like a preview of the CBDCs we're all going to live under too, where the USDC just gets turned off. And now that money, that dollar pegged asset, not anymore.
1: If you want to experience life under a CBDC, go buy some USDC, send it through Tornado Cash, even though it'll cost you probably 400 bucks, and then try to spend it somewhere and go to jail. That's the future of life under a CBDC. What's interesting is that this actually kills MakerDAO too, because MakerDAO is actually mainly... And by the way, MakerDAO is a collateralized algorithmic stablecoin. So you send in collateral to the Maker contract and you get these DAI coins that are worth a dollar and they're backed by the collateral. Well, it turns out that MakerDAO has tons of stablecoins in there. Well, why would you use stablecoins as collateral for another stablecoin? I think because there is basically some implicit leverage in this arrangement. Maybe it's not fully backed.
0: I assume it was also just to reduce volatility exposure. Essentially,
1: algorithmic stablecoins are inherently volatile. It's actually, mathematically, you can demonstrate this. And so all these stablecoin protocols, they've always been a joke, in my opinion. And they worked when it was fair sailing, when there was a bull market, when the regulatory environment was good. Well, now things are turning hostile. So all of this flashy experimentation that's super fragile on Ethereum, I think, is probably going to start running into some problems.
0: And so the MakerDAO folks who run the uh, DAI stablecoin are looking at reengineering how they even do their collateral, I think. I mean, it seems to be that they're scrambling of sorts. And as a result, their community is really up in arms. I was looking at a story that will have a link in the show notes. There could not be a more polar opposite ideas on how they should proceed. The community seems to think they haven't found the right solution yet. I guess I don't quite understand how, is it because USDC has gotten blacklisted and so therefore there might be some USDC that is backing DAI? And so that's why, ah,
1: I see. It's this
0: collateral problem of
1: stable coins. And this is part of the reason why I don't want to see stable coins in Bitcoin. I can't stop anyone from doing that, but this is a garbage idea because you're putting assets that another entity controls on that blockchain. And now that entity gets to have some say about how things work on that blockchain. Not directly, but they can influence decisions because they can say, hey, we're going to have to, if you make this change to the blockchain and add more privacy or something, we're going to have to burn all of these coins. So everyone holding our coins on your chain is going to take huge losses. It gets really complicated really fast. And Ethereum ran into that complication and said, low, 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 low. It doesn't matter. It'll be fine. Trust me, bro. And guess what? It's not fine. Don't trust them. Verify. And if you do, you'll discover it's a total mess.
0: I don't know. Meanwhile, TikTok, another block over here on Bitcoin land. Things just move right along.
1: Unfortunately, this is setting a terrifying precedent because a developer of Tornado Cash has been arrested in Amsterdam. Yeah. Now, there's not a lot of details in this report, which comes from a, I think, a Dutch publication.
0: I've seen it reported, though, by multiple different outlets. So I think it's been confirmed.
1: What's interesting, though, is that in the details, it says that the Financial Action Cyber Team, sounds like a super... Superhero group. Fact. And I think that they are a Dutch group. They were investigating a DAO, so a decentralized autonomous organization. What I suspect has happened here is that the Tornado Cash smart contract is probably a self contained thing. But if it was built on Ethereum, there has to be an element of financial speculation and pump and dump which means a DAO. So I imagine they probably created a Tornado Cash DAO, which is a way to somehow pretend that the DAO token gives you some stake in Tornado Cash, but it really doesn't. It's just an unregistered security that has no inherent properties. And they probably pumped and dumped the Tornado Cash DAO, and this guy was involved with the DAO. That's my guess. However, that's the optimistic perspective, because if what's actually happening here is this financial cyber team. Fact! Fact. If they're saying, okay, you contributed open source code to Tornado Cash, which is now sanctioned, therefore you broke sanctions, go to jail. Basically, this means that free speech is now illegal.
0: Yeah, this is a problem because there's, at least here in the States, there's legal precedent that code is, in fact, free speech. In fact, it's something the members of the free software community have fought for for a long time. And it goes back. I just did a little bit of digging for this last Linux action show that I recorded, and there is specific precedence that has been set for this. And I guess we're just kind of throwing that out. But in 1996, a federal court case established source code as speech and protected by the First Amendment. So I guess that might not be a thing now. (laughs) Or like you said, maybe it is about the pump and dump of the security. That would be a much that'd be a better version of what's happening here. I hope it's not because he just created an open source project.
1: However, I would say plan for the worst. So I've been expecting people to come after developers. We've already had Craig Wright come after developers with nonsense lawsuits to hassle them into giving him satoshi's coins which of course failed but at the end of the day while bitcoin is immutable code running in a decentralized network The weak point is people. People are always the weak point. And so if you can convince the public, convince your regulatory bodies that Bitcoin is some sort of dangerous existential threat to the current economic system, then the people who contribute it, you can put them in a new category, which is financial terrorists or something like that. And once you get put into a scary category like that, you have no rights and people can do violence to you without repercussion. And so I think that we should hope that doesn't happen, but we need to build that robustness into our model, which means I'm very heartened to see the attrition in Bitcoin developers lately. Now, I know this is not a popular opinion. Mm. But we have lost many Bitcoin developers recently.
0: Yeah. And there's been some arguing on Twitter about it. Yeah.
1: And I think this is great because my optimistic take of the situation is that if you are a Bitcoin developer and your name and face is known, it is time to retire. And maybe a new pseudonymous developer emerges whose name and face is not known.
0: Yeah. Maybe after like a nice six month break. Take a break. Go on vacation. Come back. Stay off Twitter.
1: And a new pseudonym. Connect to the repo via Tor or your own... VPN or something and uh, just keep that OPSEC high.
0: Take it serious from the beginning. Hit the reset button.
1: Look, everyone wants to associate their contributions with Bitcoin Core to their professional identity. And you can still do that. You can tell people probably. We'll probably be okay. I mean, it's not like everyone's going to run to rat you out to OFAC. But I think that we need to move into a much more adversarial mindset because it turned out that all of the paranoid Bitcoiners who wanted to build things to be state-level resistant from attack, oh my God, they were right. Whoops. Sorry. Ethereum.
0: Well said, and it just makes me so thankful for the Bitcoin developers who have taken security seriously from the very beginning. I think there are members of the community who have been really good about that, better than the other projects, and feeling really grateful for them today zooming out and looking more at bitcoin again. There was one thing that happened this week that felt like a long-term positive signal. And there's a saying that felt really true. Bitcoin is for enemies. This week BlackRock announced that they were launching a spot bitcoin private trust. Now, this is in addition to the news where they announced they would be doing management services for their clients working with Coinbase. This is spot trading. And what's very notable in my opinion about this is BlackRock was really the leader in ESG investing. But it would seem that the demand by their customers, which in some cases are banks, that's who some of their customers are, the demand from their customers has been so strong for Bitcoin that BlackRock basically has to eat their words on the ESG FUD here and they have to offer something.
1: Yeah, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, was one of the biggest proponents of ESG. I think that his explanation for why ESG was so important was pretty incoherent. The idea that we're going to somehow fix the world because institutional asset managers are going to push for marginal change. Changes from big companies to do things marginally more better. In my mind, this is window dressing to escape regulation because, at the end of the day, the vast majority of our civilization's energy comes from fossil fuel sources, which contribute to climate change. And listen, The physics are pretty simple. If we were to just automate all of our energy consumption for the next hundred years and our current energy mix, at the end of those hundred years, we'll be living in a planet that is on its way to becoming Venus.
0: And you're saying BlackRock's ESG programs weren't gonna save us
1: from that? Apparently pushing (laughs) the boards of companies to reduce emissions one percent. But really what was happening was companies were doing things like saying, you know, we've got a lot of trees on our corporate campus. Let's count the amount
0: of carbon those trees are removing. Oh, look, look how ESG we are. It's total nonsense. Our, our local uh, big tech company, Microsoft, bought hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres of trees to offset their corporate flights' carbon footprint. Right, and those trees existed already. And they're just continuing to burn jet fuel. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful
1: system for them. Thanks, BlackRock. At the end of the day, BlackRock is this financial behemoth, and they were forced to offer a Bitcoin product to their customers because there's so much demand. I think that's an important signal.
0: They may be trying to front run other large institutions, and this is absolutely a signal when you've got BlackRock and you've got Fidelity and you've got other major players that are getting in here now. They're front running as much as they can for as late as they are. PSA do
1: not not by Bitcoin through BlackRock or Fidelity. Buy real Bitcoin. Send them to your own wallet using protected by your own private keys. You have to learn how to safeguard your own funds, or else you lose basically all of the benefits of Bitcoin. It becomes a speculative asset. And hey, if you want a speculative asset that's held by a third party, I hear ETH is pretty good.
0: Heyo. Yeah, and you know what? When you're looking for that ESG narrative, you can go over there now to get it. So <laughs> go for it. <laughs> Just let us know how it works in about 10 years. I put this article under Tokenomics,
1: but I'm not sure where it really belongs. The title is Insiders Always Dump behavioral implications of the ETH-BTC cross. Now, ETH-BTC cross, that just means the cross exchange rate between Ethereum and BTC. Now, most crypto charts, they use the crypto-slash-dollar cross. Basically, what is the value of this cryptocurrency in dollars? And that's how everybody thinks, because we live in a
0: dollarized world. That's the same thing as a trading pair? Exactly.
1: One thing you may have heard in this last bull market, and a bunch of altcoin promoters mention this very loudly on Twitter, is that Ethereum ran further than Bitcoin in this market? Meaning the dollar appreciation of Ethereum was a percent as a percentage of the price of Ethereum before the market. Ethereum pumped harder.
0: Yeah, total gains was it was on a trajectory to flipping Bitcoin one day.
1: And this is absolute nonsense. Because if you look at the infographics in this article, you can see that if you start valuing Ethereum in terms of Bitcoin, Ethereum has never reached the 2017 high in Bitcoin terms. It's been trying to test that high, but it's always collapsed lower. And there are a bunch of other altcoins here, including Monero. And I call that out because I think it's important for our Monero friends to understand the tokenomics of the Monero privacy coin. It doesn't matter that you have good intentions and are pure-hearted, privacy-focused individuals. Monero is an altcoin, and it will go the same place all altcoins go. Zero in Bitcoin terms.
0: Yeah, and what really sells it is the graphic that will be linked in the notes. You can just see it for Litecoin, XRP, Cordana, Monero, Stellar, Neo. There's just the math of it is it goes up, it pumps, the insiders, they sell, and it dumps, and it never reaches those highs again. What drives
1: this? Because the way we talk about it, it's like we're describing a mathematical certainty, but what is the universal formula that determines this behavior? The formula is insiders. And that's something that is hard to understand from the outside, but Bitcoin has no insiders. Sure, there are Bitcoin whales. There are some early Bitcoiners who accumulated a bunch of coins when they weren't worth a lot, and they occasionally sell tops or bottoms. They occasionally sell, and this makes the market very volatile. But it's It's a completely different situation from altcoins because of all the altcoins, maybe other than Monero, Ethereum had the fairest issuance. There was a 70% pre-mine, 70% of Ethereum were created right out the gate. And yes, a lot were given to insiders. I think 15 to 30% were given to Vitalik, the core team and the Ethereum Foundation. So these people were just given coins. And that's a red flag. If a project is giving people coins, it's garbage. Just straight up, it's garbage. Because look, even if you did a lot of work... Work, and you created this thing out of thin air and it sounds like fiat though it's fiat because those coins you're getting are tax on everyone else and when you give people coins in the beginning you create this inherent incentive to dump
0: we actually have seen vitalik has admitted to this a video i shared in the bitcoin matrix chat room a couple of weeks ago vitalik said uh, at this latest top they sold like thirty thousand eth or something like that
1: and i think the interviewer said oh did you short eth and i'm like what the the fact that that's even a question it means that oh yeah that's it's normal. I'm an ETH insider, but I short ETH sometimes. I mean, just think about the optics of that. You're basically saying, I think ETH is the future, but I'm going to go ahead and short it and like potentially screw over all the people who listen to me and believe me. This just speaks to the way that these financial incentives drive amoral, suspicious behavior. And this makes Ethereum predatory, in my opinion.
0: I think in, in part two, it's, it's just human behavior, unfortunately. You know, like Vitalik got the foundation to sell 30,000 ETH at the peak of the last market because there's just too much upside and you can easily justify, well, if we take a big cash position now, I mean, fair play to him, by the way, if you look historically when Vitalik has sold, he nails the tops every single time. He's real good at that.
1: Yeah, because he's got people that he pays money to to figure out where those tops are. Okay, none of you guppy retail traders are going to get that performance. I mean,
0: can you imagine when you're on the inside of a currency like that, all the kind of data and info you have access to? And people. Right. And he's done it multiple times. And they say it's, you know, hey, we get runaway from it. We get we get runaway from it. I mean, OK, but maybe don't do it all at once. Maybe spread it out. Like there's got to be a way that makes it more um, palatable to the rest of the holders. But like you say, it's a tax, right? Because those were pre-mined coins they're selling. They're pre-mined coins they're selling. They got them for free. And they now
1: got $4,000 a coin or something like that for free. That's infinite return. And that return... Turn comes out of every other E holder. So look, people who are defending ETH and Vitalik and the Ethereum Foundation, I'm sorry, you guys are hostages. You're on a bus. It's driven by a mad Canadian Russian gentleman. It's going off a cliff and you're just focusing on, you know, how smart he is and what a funny way he has of talking that makes the ridiculous things he says sound reasonable. Okay, enough ad hominem attacks on Vitalik. I recommend this post because early in my journey, I listened to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot of material. And because I didn't have the technical chops to start running Nodes and get into the weeds. I wasn't sure that Bitcoin was the future because smart contracts on Ethereum. And, you know, these smart contracts look, they are useful in the short term. There's some cool things you can do with them. I'll say it proudly. I've interacted with an Ethereum smart contract in the past, and I thought, gosh, that was pretty neat what that did. What was I missing? Well, I was interacting with it via a web wallet connected to a developer backend of the wallet server that then connected to the Infura API that then connected to the Ethereum blockchain. That's the problem. That is a very fragile row of dominoes that's easy to knock over. It's a lot of trust. A lot of people get wrecked in that ecosystem. Ethereum still has $300 million of losses every year just from contract errors, I believe. You know, that is a mess.
0: You know, we we heard in that story too, Iran mentioned smart contracts specifically. So there's clearly people see utility in them. Uh
1: Uh-oh, Ethereum. If Iran is interacting with your blockchain, and Infura's hosting those blocks on AWS. Mm -hmm. Has Infura violated sanctions? Uh Uh-oh.
0: It's going to get weird. Something to keep an
1: eye on. This episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by the Self-Hosted Show from Jupiter Broadcasting. The Self-Hosted Show is a podcast about running your own digital infrastructure, learning new technologies, and having a great time while doing both. Recently, the Self-Hosted Show has talked a lot about Ansible, a configuration management and deployment tool which is very popular in industry and also super helpful for the home labber. Check it out at selfhosted.show or listen or search for the Self-Hosted Show in India podcast app.
0: Now it's time for a little Bitcoin education, and we're going to dig into the Bitcoin Optech issue 212 to talk about that dust limit. Also, a Lightning update that I think I'm happy to see. Why don't we jump into that Lightning update first?
1: Sure. Because we are a fan of Lightning. We are.
0: Via boosts. And I honestly could see a future where a lot of my business's transactions to like hosts and sponsors and audience payments and contractors is done over Lightning. So I've been thinking, how am I going to integrate this from an accounting standpoint into my business and how am i going to just monitor all of this and you know not lose track of all of it it looks like in the Optech newsletter, they covered a core Lightning update that adds a bookkeeper plugin that provides accounting record of movements of Bitcoins by the node that's running that plugin, including the ability to track the amount spent on fees. The merged PR also includes several new RPC commands, I assume, to get that data.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting idea, because right now, the way that the RSS feed for Boost is constructed, it's a very manual interface. So it feels like it's designed to set the RSS split and everything once for each show and then leave it. Whereas if we had a more automated system where we could basically create RSS feeds for each episode, then we could start to do stuff like adding the guest into every episode. And it wouldn't just be a monetary recompense thing because it could also be used so that the guest can see the comments, the boost messages as well. So there's a lot of really interesting integrations that could happen there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and just getting more insights into how your Lightning payments are moving around, what you're paying in terms of overall fees. Like, if you were to ask me right now, like, what is your average fee you're paying when you're for your Lightning node when you send out Lightning payments? I have no idea. Yeah, 100%. No clue right now. <laughs> yeah, I could probably find it, but. I don't.
1: It actually brings to mind a criticism of Podcasting 2.0. I recently read from Fiat Jeff. Yeah. And Jeff is an interesting guy. I think he's a core developer, maybe, or maybe just a Bitcoin thinker. But I've read his critiques of IPFS and some of his Bitcoin musings, which have been really helpful to me. For instance, I didn't know that Ripple was a project before XRP. That Ripple
0: was XRP.
1: Well, there's actually an (laughs) original Ripple protocol, which is very flawed. Oh, Oh, okay. But it was sort of an interesting pseudo trusted eCash model that didn't quite work. So Fiat Jeff's beef with podcasting 2.0 is basically a Austrian economics critique of donations.
0: I believe I read that and isn't it kind of his core argument is that it's essentially too much mental friction for the audience to do the math on what they think that content was valued to them and he also I think positions that well they could never fully appreciate how much work went into it so they can't properly calculate the value either I think those were sort of his kind of his core like fundamental complaints about it but I kind of disagree I think, the audience is capable of figuring out the value to them pretty easily. And then, you know, like Marcel just did uh, when he boosted in, like one of our first boosts we'll get to in a bit. He'll, he'll do like a number sequence that makes sense to him. Like they'll come up with patterns that work for them too. And I, that's an element I just don't think he's even aware of.
1: Right. I think he's thinking about the streaming sats functionality and not about the boosting messages functionality, because actually the boostogram is a service, right? Because if you send a boost with a higher fee rate, it's going to get read eventually at a certain fee rate. And it's not super clear right now. And I don't think it makes sense to define that relationship fully transactionally. I mean, the way we do it now is we say, generally speaking, if you have a thousand Satoshi's boostogram, we're going to read it. And that's really a congestion monitoring tool, which is kind of the entire point of this whole system in that there's no podcast that reads YouTube comments because YouTube comments are garbage because there's no content moderation or rate
0: limiting feature there. And so the majority of... Of the comments are very unconstructed. And I think also having some skin in the game when you send the comment in, it changes the quality of that comment. As somebody who boosts myself, I boost the podcast I listen to. And it's it's not just a drive by, right? There's a little bit more skin in the game on my part.
1: I actually was very suspicious of the boost model. I kind of sighed and thought, oh, great, another thing I love getting monetized. And it wasn't like that at all, actually. It made me really think carefully because in fountain.fm, I have like a standard boosting rate when I listen to anything. And now there's There are some podcasts where they come up in my feed and I'm like, I'm not going to listen to that because I don't want to support it. And actually, I think that makes sense because if I wouldn't financially
0: support it, why am I listening to it? That's a good point. Yep. When you look at the value his critique of the value for value system, there's also something a little bit different about podcasts than I'd say like software donations or other types of donations because podcasts, you listen to somebody, we kind of establish a relationship with the audience. And there's alternatives besides just sending satoshis, right? Somebody can help with website. Development, like the community over Jupiter Broadcasting is doing, or they can create a little bit of artwork to help with uh, maybe an event you're going to. You know, there's so many ways people can contribute, or maybe they spread the word that they liked an episode and they sent it to three or four friends. That's contributing value back to the show that isn't just monetary. And the value for value framework goes beyond just dollar for dollar. It's also time and talent that's part of the value for value system.
1: We've been doing podcasts for a while now, and it makes sense that as the technology to produce podcasts, to make podcasts sound pretty good, the fact that I was able to record in a bedroom on vacation with Chris and it didn't sound so bad you couldn't listen to it, that's a real technological achievement because we've got a lot of tools that didn't exist 10 years ago. At the same time, the economic and social models around this phenomenon also should probably change at the same time. We've had time to think about it. What's sustainable? What produces good outcomes?
0: Right. And the advertising model that podcasting has gone with was adopted from early radio. It's an early radio model. The host read. It's the golden era of radio format. While it's fine, it's not necessarily digitally native. Where boosts and the Lightning Network and SATs, that's all digitally native stuff. And the podcast is a digitally native medium. And so I feel like it's just needed this payment system. It just hasn't really fully materialized yet. And ultimately, as a listener, you are in a better position if the podcast is being monetized via audience contributions instead of ads. Ultimately, I mean, it depends on the podcast and the podcaster. And sometimes that balance can be struck. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you are the one that is not paying for it, you are probably the one that is being sold as the product.
1: I think that's a good place to leave it. And that brings us to this conversation around minimum fee. Fee rates. So, for some background, there's this thing in Bitcoin Core called the dust limit. And the idea of the dust limit is that there are some transaction fees that are so low that it's basically spam. You're basically spamming the network. And so inside Bitcoin Core, there's a file, bitcoin.conf. You can set values for various behavior of your node. This is how you configure your node. And most settings have a default value. And there are three values in there, three settings min relay transaction fee, block min transaction fee, and dust relay fee. And these have default settings, which are basically, I think, the effective behavior is that your minimum transaction rate for your transaction has to be one Satoshi per virtual byte right now. And there's a conversation happening on the Bitcoin dev list about removing this default setting and basically saying, listen, right now, a lot of blocks are not full. Mempools are not full. So we don't really see a need for a minimum relay fee. What we can do is we can say, listen, you can... And offer a transaction with less than a one satoshi per vbyte fee and if the network gets swamped we'll rely on the mempool maximum size to filter out the small fees. So basically you can fill up my node mempool with small fee transactions, 0.5 satoshis per vbyte or whatever. But then when Chris sends a bunch of transactions with one or two or 10 or 100 satoshis per vbyte, these will take priority and push out the smaller fee transactions from my mempool. So let's do that. I think it would be reasonable to try this because I'd certainly like to send very cheap transactions sometimes. And what's the downside? Well, basically there could be DDoS attacks because if I, swamp nodes with super low fee transactions, the node still has to kind of listen for the transaction, filter it, put it in the mempool, remove it from the mempool. So I think that it's worth testing to see if we immediately get denial of service attacks on the network. But at the end of the day, this is a setting in Bitcoin Core, and it's a good example of how default settings are a form of consensus. If we change the default settings in Bitcoin Core when we ship the software, most people just, they load it, they don't change the default settings. This is actually affecting Bitcoin consensus, and it speaks to how complicated consensus is and how thoughtful development has to be to create a stable, sustainable system.
0: And it's also a great catch mechanism. You know, if we started to roll this out and noticed, oh, we are seeing some DDoS effect or maybe, a you know, a bear market comes thundering in and all of a sudden the transaction volume on the Bitcoin network skyrockets and there's a whole bunch of new transactions, right? Uh, we could probably roll something like this back too. It's not like this is one of those changes where it's going to bring us to our knees and everything's doomed, right? So the stakes are a little lower on this one. Yeah, we're not talking about raising the block size limit or anything. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's an interesting idea and one that seems like now is the time to experiment with, although the core conversation itself goes back quite a long ways. This has been something that's come up over the years, but uh, you know, now kind of seems like a great time to experiment.
1: And And all this talk of Satoshi's brings up feedback. I mean, because booths entail Satoshi's for the show. I got it. Sorry, just making it clear. Remember, you can get in touch with the show Bitcoin Dadpod at protonmail.com or at Dadpod on Twitter.
0: And we did get some boosts. Our first one came in from Marcel with one, two, three, four sats. Uh, and he says, don't worry about that last week when he accidentally sent in a double. He blames it on Fountain, but it's uh, fine for us to hang on to it. Thanks for the show. And don't read this on air, he says. Now, he says you don't have to read it on air. But you know what, Marcel? You are a boosting legend, so we wanted to read it on air. So we appreciate you sending it in. Ooh! Yukon Cornelius is back with 4,500 SATs.
1: Maybe complimenting that Boost name. Yeah, his Boost username. Had the desired effect.
0: And also he says, thanks for helping a little bit with the OPSEC security last week when we didn't reveal his full setup. Um, He's like, I do appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) You bet. No problem, Yukon. We like the name a lot. All right. Now we do have another boost that came in here. This, you know, we got also, I should say, we set a policy recently where we're reading a thousand and above on air, but all the boosts get read. So thank you, everybody who did boost in like uh, Scott Wolf boosted in 200 sats. Just saying, you know, thanks for the analysis. You know, we saw that, Scott. So thank you for boosting that in. Boosts
1: are a way to communicate with the show. So if a thousand sat limit doesn't feel appropriate for the message you want to send in, that's fine. We definitely read every message. Just giving someone a penny and a message means that they're going to read the message. That's how we do it. Yeah, it's funny, huh? If you have concerns or thoughts or suggestions, it's a great way to write in. Email is too. I love getting emails for the show, but I'm going to be honest. I think I've gotten maybe 10 emails for the show in this entire mm. run so far.
0: Well, you know, the great thing about this audience is I think they get that we're all at the same time, we're building out the Lightning Network, which is going to be great for future users. Like we're laying the brickwork with these boosts. That's That is a big deal.
1: Welcome to the cutting edge of financial technology.
0: Captain Stacks boosted in with 1776 sats. And he, I believe, is weighing in when you asked, what if we split this up into multiple podcasts? He says he enjoys the wide range of topics in one show. And we did get a few boosts to that regard. People giving us the feedback on some liked it split up, some liked it all in one show. Uh, Pitar boosted in with 5,000 sats. Pew, pew. Pitar is the name and spraying sats is my game. <laughs> Thanks, Pitar. I think that was from last week, but that is a great. Boost. Oh, okay. okay. You know what? Then they got double the value. If that's true, there you go, Petar. C Dubs boosted in. Dad, look at this with the boot uh, with the Boost CLI uh, tool. I think they had some trouble here because we got we got a batch of boosts, and it looks like a couple of them were just test boost, like small amounts. But then he got it through uh, ten thousand one hundred and one sats mega boost, and it's just a uh, uh, a wave, a high, it's just a hello. Super credit, C Dubs, for using Boost CLI and Lavio are. No, Lava Leo. Lava Leo boosted in from Boo C L I as well. But just it was 100 sats. But we saw that come in with Boo C L I. A couple more that came in on the topic of splitting the show up or not. 1484 sats from BDA Listener. I like the more podcast feeds idea. I would subscribe to all of them. And then uh, they use Castomatic and they sent that in a few times. So uh, let us know if you'd like a couple of those to come back to you. If
1: you accidentally send in a boost, the pod is always happy to send it back to you.
0: The situation could be tricky because. The boosts require good network connectivity. You know, you gotta you gotta get that on the network. And if you just hit, you know you hit send at a moment when connectivity is a little tricky on your phone, or maybe they you know they can't quickly find the right route. And each one of these apps have different timeouts. Sometimes those things can happen. Yeah. So don't don't feel bad about it at all. If you need to hit us up and let us know,
1: there are a lot of rough edges on this system, and that's what building a robust decentralized system entails. It means the UX isn't great, unfortunately. It'll get great over time, but it definitely is. Ne- not as smooth as Ethereum, let me tell you.
0: <laughs> lurks a lot. Sir Lurks a lot boosted in with some leet sats. Thanks for another great show. I've been learning a lot from you guys, especially on economics. I really appreciate the high signal to noise ratio. That's some high praise right there. Yeah, that is. Thanks so much. Uh we also saw your other message, Lurks a lot. So and then one last jeez, wow. I'm scrolling and they keep appearing. Another Lurks a lot came in with another thousand sats. I like the holistic approach in one show with everything covered, your normal sections focusing on different areas. I could listen to three shows, but it's nice to have it all in one spot. (laughs) with a lot of meat. Exposure to the greater scenes and stories around these topics is great, and it's well-rounded, I would say. I'd go for deep dives on particular special focus episodes, maybe as an extra episode in the feed or even on its own release, but I like what you got. Cheers.
1: Oh, that's great feedback. Yeah, there are a lot of things we have been talking about deep diving in, and I'm behind on that because of traveling. So hope to get into a more productive cadence.
0: Give yourself more credit. Not only did I think you didn't miss any of the regular episodes, but you put out extra episodes while you were traveling. So don't go, don't be too hard on yourself. That's not easy.
1: Thanks. But I would like to do another deep dive on BISC, Mm, RoboSats. Yes. And I think we need to talk about Join Market. Because Join Market is a great the idea. Bitcoin CoinJoin solution that doesn't care about OFAC sanctions. There's yeah. no one to sanction there. Yeah, that's a great idea. You'd have to sanction the whole network to stop Join Market. I was talking with someone I won't reveal their name, who was basically saying, "Listen, Join Market gets this reputation as hard to use, but it isn't. You just need to use it, and it's about the same level of complexity as the more centralized solutions like Wasabi and Samurai. Also, don't use Wasabi." <laughs>
0: (laughs) Yeah, I loaded the last few. Marcel came in with a double boost. I would listen to all three podcasts. If you put them out, I'll find time to make them. Thanks, Marcel. Uh, I think that's, we'll see. You know, that's maybe a future idea. Who knows? We got a row of ducks, 2,222 sats from Thornton, Maryland. If you aren't careful, Bitcoiners are going to be slandered as a cult with certain philosophies which shall not be named. They already are. That's happening all the time. Oh, definitely. The, yeah. I, the
1: IMF says that Bitcoin is a quasi-religion or something they say Quasi-religion, believing in a new messiah. (laughs) what was the old messiah was that the euro the dollar i don't know i don't know (laughs) in their pantheon I, i guess is the new messiah satoshi i don't think so because bitcoiners are pretty iconoclastic yeah you know before satoshi disappeared there was this meme on the bitcoin talk forum called satoshi is my girlfriend and the idea was that satoshi could be anybody and satoshi wasn't sort of an authority figure they were just another bitcoiner and satoshi might even be your girlfriend I don't know if that's a little chauvinist, but that did happen.
0: And we'll round it out today with a boost that truly demonstrates the worldwide network of the Lightning Network. We got three sets. I decided to pull this one forward from Jaff 2100. Lovely show. Keep up the good work from Saudi Arabia. And I just thought that was pretty great. We have Saudi Arabian listeners. Thank you so much. Especially after all the
1: harsh things I've said about the rulers yeah, of your country.
0: That's true. And not even a comment on that aspect of it. <laughs>
1: I certainly don't mean to paint citizens of Saudi Arabia with a bad brush. Right. Merely to point out the moral ambiguity of the United States' relationship with that mm-hmm. regime. Thank you so much for getting in touch with the show. Remember that you can always send in an email or boost using a podcasting 2.0 app. We have some links in the show notes. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, August 12th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always with me,
0: Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.